Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Christian Sager. Hey, Robert, have you ever had any, like, extensive dental work done before? Ooh, I mean, any kind of dental work feels extensive. Uh, That's true, you yeah. Uh, you know, a little bit here and there, I guess. It's, uh, it's always a weird issue for me because my dad was a dentist. And oh, so, I didn't uh, know that. Okay. At least for a few years there, when I was having, I had my, um, my wisdom teeth, uh, yanked out. Yeah. It was, I had this, it was in the super weird kind of headspace about it because uh, for most of my life, my dad had been my dentist. And so oh, okay. I'm kind of getting these weird, like illogical feelings of like, you can't be my dentist. You're not my dad. Yeah. Yeah. You know, kind of thing going on. And then, uh, and then, yeah, it, it sucks to have your, your teeth worked on. Yeah. And well, that's, that's a perfect sort of allegory actually, because you know, what we're going to be talking about today is the cultural ramifications and connections to modifying your teeth. Yeah. Uh, in my case, I, you know, I haven't had a ton done, but I did have my wisdom teeth taken out as well in my early twenties and it was a nightmare. Yeah. Uh, I remember, you know, I was a poor college student at the time and I like had the procedure done and I woke up and was just like bleeding everywhere. And my girlfriend at the time had to take me back to her place where I was supposed to like rest up for two days, Uh you know, and it's just, I wasn't like equipped maturity wise (laughs) to deal with that kind of a procedure. And like weeks later, like I I forget what they call it in in dental practice, but like fragments of tooth would like work Mm -hmm. their way up through my gums. It was, it was horrifying. Yeah. When I had mine out, my, uh, my wife uh, picked me up uh, from the procedure and, uh, and almost fainted when I took the the bloody gauze out yeah. and pinched it out. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the weirdest is the mm-hmm. bloody gauze. So we're going to be talking about how, the body modification of teeth in various cultures around the world. Yeah. But I think it's a good starting point for us to sort of compare our own dental horror stories in Western <laughs> culture because it's fairly similar, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's an area where a lot of people have a lot of well-deserved anxiety and not only because dental surgery kind of sucks and dental pain sucks, but also because these are the only teeth you have. And when you start having problems with them, it's this damning reminder of your mortality. Yeah. Uh, I think it was yeah. Tina Fey in her uh, autobiography uh, she had this great line that I remember above all else in that book. She says, the mouth dies first. <laughs> Talking about just as yeah. you get older and like not, not even necessarily procedures you have to have done, but just like like dealing with like the breath of an older person. You know, it's like, oh, my breath smells so bad in the morning. What's going on? Yeah. And it's this feeling that that uh, the rest of me still feels young, but my my teeth. Are on yeah. this, uh, this irreversible path to the grave. Well, Tina Fey then would probably understand some of the cultures we're going to talk about today, especially when it comes to tooth extraction and, uh, which is also referred to as ablation, mm-hmm. uh, and the idea that, you know, by preemptively yanking them out of your head, you're sort of cutting off disease at the pass. Yeah. So we're going to talk about, uh, different cultural rituals and practices, uh, that involve the, uh, the, the, the shaving of teeth, the filing of teeth, the sharpening of teeth, the removal of teeth. But before we even get into, uh, the details of any of these practices, I think it's important to really connect those practices to our modern, uh, dental obsessions. Yeah. And we have a wonderful quote here, um, that, uh, you're about to read. And it's from, uh, one of the sources that we use. On this episode, uh, The Cultural Modification of Teeth by Clark Johnson, DDS, Ph.D. Yeah, he really nailed it. And I think that it provided an excellent overview mm-hmm. that seemed to be mostly for 
uh, people in school for dental practice, yes. uh, but giving them an idea of, you know, what, what's out there on a larger scale. Okay, so he says, an alien visitor to Earth might describe a tooth-related cult now common in many industrialized societies. The people believe in the tooth cult so unquestionable, they call the holy doers doctor. The cult requires an initiation wherein the holy material objects are fastened to their teeth. Then they go through to two difficult years of trial until they emerge purified and the holy material objects are taken off in a rite of passage. These people live in a society that admires what it sees on billboards, in magazines, and a mystical place they call Hollywood. Both believers and priests learn their ideals there. The practitioners of the cult have an obsession with lines and angles. I really like that. That, yeah. and, and I think that it's an important distinction for us to set up to as Westerners. And we may have some listeners out, out there who are familiar with some of these cultures that we're going to be talking about. But as Westerners, we mess around with our teeth just as much as some of the stuff that we're about to talk about that's going to seem weird and sort of cultish, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, especially when you look at the cult of the Hollywood smile, like how much time and energy goes into the straightening, whitening, not only just the physical manipulation of the teeth, but then placing... uh you know, um, essentially fake teeth over those teeth and yeah. and sculpting them down and just getting everything perfectly lined up for that magazine worthy smile. So before we dive into the first chunk here where we're going to talk about uh, everything except for the extraction, mm-hmm. let's remind uh, you, the listener out there, if you're new to the show, there's a bunch of stuff that we do other than just podcasting. Uh, so Stuff to Blow Your Mind is Robert, myself and Joe McCormick, and we podcast. But we also do videos. We also write articles. Uh, we all work out of how stuff works. And uh, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr, where we're all uh, blow the mind as our handle. And we curate throughout the week various weird science kind of bizarre oddity articles, as well as our own content. And StuffToBlowYourMind.com is the mothership where you can find most of that content, right? Yeah. So let's get down to it. Let's just start with teeth. What are some of the, the main reasons we have teeth to begin with? Yeah, well, you know, when we think about it, the essential functions for our teeth are mastication, speech, and then there's the aesthetic part, right? Right. Um, and, you know, here in Western society, I, I know that most of us worry about the whiteness of our teeth or the shape of our mm-hmm. teeth or, or how they smell, right? All of those kinds of things. <laughs> but there are also anthropological, what are referred to as paramasticatory functions of teeth. And this is where teeth are altered by intent or sometimes uh, in what's called like an unconscious accident or maybe some kind of behavioral result, right? Now, okay, you might be reeling from this idea already. You might be one of those people who doesn't like going to the dentist and and there's that, you know, there's that special kind of dentist. As opposed to that. Type of the person who, person who loves, loves it, it right? Yeah. <laughs> no, you know what I mean? Uh, isn't there like a, a particular kind of dentist you can go to if you have a little bit of trauma associated with dental practice that's like quiet and they play soft music and they're like very gentle about the way they go about things? I forget what there's a name for it, but I've, I've read about it before. Mm-hmm. But so if you're that, you know, type of patient for dentists, you might be reeling from this idea already about body modification culture in general, especially when it comes to your mouth. Yeah, like I know, having read a lot of Stephen King, especially uh, in my like junior high and teen years, I feel like that was something King would come back to time and time again. This image of a, an individual with with sharpened teeth. Yeah, because on one hand, it, it's like 
they've completely given themselves over to some sort of animalistic uh, quality, and and at the same time, it's irreversible, right? You've how could you do right. that with your teeth? Yeah, and uh, you know, there's our fascination with vampires. Mm-hmm. There's uh, just the idea of exactly like kind of what you're mentioning, like the 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 canine teeth of the human being is sort of a representation of our primal nature, right? Yeah. Because, of course, we have uh, teeth for tearing, teeth for mm-hmm. crushing, uh, all important for our uh, omnivorous diet. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and then also it's worth noting that, you know, historically teeth have come in handy for tool use. We don't recommend it, but yeah. it is they can be used as a tool. And that's another way they can be altered for sure, right, mm-hmm. if you're, like, chewing on rope or something like that. Right. Uh, but then also, uh, you know, self-defense uh, mm-hmm. situations as well. As a last-ditch uh, scenario, uh, humans can bite. So what the important thing to remember here as we're going over this is that, you know, teeth are artifacts of human behavior, just in the same way as like our clothing are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as such, we modify them in ways to communicate with others non-verbally. Uh, my experience in in communications theory is this is referred to as artifactual communication, right? So whereas like we might brush our teeth or wear braces or um, whiten our teeth or something like that, in other societies, they're drilling holes into their teeth and mounting jewels in them or they're uh, dyeing them black, right? Or they're ripping them out of their gums. Uh, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. One theory about this is that it's a form of costly signaling theory. And this theory argues that in certain cultures, individuals employ what are usually costly, you know, monetarily wise Mm -hmm. signals that help one receive rewards. And usually that's in the form of a mate. Okay, so you this is the kind of thing you would see if you went down to the beach and you saw, say, a dude who's really put in a lot of time and money on his physique and maybe he's covered with a bunch of tattoos to boot. Exactly. Yeah. And even to some Western dentists, these practices that we're going to talk about today are going to seem totally weird and and maybe unhealthy in some situations, too. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we have to remember that our own traditions are considered absolute in our culture and our ideas about teeth are just as culturally determined as, say, the Balinese or the Acadian uh, French Canadian population we're going to talk about today. So, okay, let's let's get into it. We've got chipping, filing, staining, banding, jewel inlays. Let's start with how human beings modify their teeth. All right. So what are some what are some of the the earliest known examples of this when we look back at the um, at the archaeological data? So the oldest known example are the Etruscans. And this is in seventh century BCE. They took flat gold bands and they would hold their real teeth or sometimes fake teeth in place with these gold bands in their mouths. Now, only women wore these devices and the surviving pieces have been found in dig sites in the Italian region of Lazio. Uh, it's thought that these generally denoted wealth and some kind of high status because those were the kind of grave sites that they were found in. Um, but there's also been examples from ancient cultures of covering your teeth in gold everywhere from Rome to China. So that's that's a fairly common thing. That goes back a while. It's yeah. not just like a new fad. And of course, yeah, and to your point, continues on to this day. Yeah. So it's just a... A, a perfectly human uh, uh, um, obsession since time out of mind. Right. Yeah. I mean, like the uh, the, the the current culture of like uh, caps and grills mm-hmm. uh, is is especially like similar to these kinds of things. And here in Atlanta, I mean, just downtown Atlanta, there's several places. I, I used to work down there when I was uh, working at the university. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of places where you can just walk in and get your grills set up. 
Um, so it is a, you know, common cultural phenomenon today as well with the gold inlays. Now, one of the examples of, uh, dental modification that, uh, that, that I've found particularly fascinating, uh, and have blogged on in the past is, uh, uh, Balinese tooth filing. So this takes place on the Indian, Indonesian, uh, island of Bali. And, uh, this is in, in in this particular society. It's those uh, carnivorous teeth that we've uh, we, we've touched on already. The okay. canines and the incisors. So these are viewed as sort of you know bestial teeth, as representing the, the yeah. bestial nature uh, of humanity. And so uh, here we find tooth filing as a rite of passage into adulthood and a key indicator of social, aesthetic, and spiritual well-being. Okay, and the key here is that they're not filing their teeth into points. They're right. actually filing them down so they're flatter, right? Right. It's almost it, you know to create a more um, you know vegetarian <laughs> dental arrangement. Yeah. Yeah, they smooth away the fang-like qualities of uh, of the human teeth and in doing so they smooth away the the savage aspects of their soul. That's the the approach here. Uh, and ideally the ritualized procedure is performed by uh, a Brahmin priest, though you can actually uh, get your uh, local Balinese dentist to manage it as well. And if you can't afford tooth filing, this is uh, this is amazing. They are charitable organizations, or you may be able to to get a sponsor, an individual to sponsor you so that you can receive the procedure. Like that's the, wow. the cultural weight that it yeah. has. Yeah, so it's that important to oh, their yeah. society. And so from what I was reading, my understanding was that this is a practice that has both localized traditional history, but then it also has some Hindu uh, religious qualities that got merged into it when Hinduism became popular in the region? Yeah, it's a, it's an ancient custom, predates uh, Hinduism's arrival on the island in the 5th century BCE, uh, and is often, you know, is the case, the, the old ways merge with the new ways, and it becomes this... Uh, you know, this hugely important thing. So important that if you, uh, if you die with unmodified teeth, then, uh, then the, the teeth of your corpse can even be filed down to ensure huh. your passage into the spirit realm. And you probably don't need a specialist for that. At that point, they can just have, <laughs> you know, like your brother can do it. Yeah, I'm guessing maybe it, it requires a little less uh, care and finesse. <laughs> the, the symbolic power of this is pretty crazy, too, because if, if anyone out there is familiar with Balinese art, like, it, then I should be able to just say Bali, Balinese art, and you should get certain pictures of their, their more common uh, motifs in your mind. You know, particularly you see this, uh, there's a character named Boma, the son of the earth, and he's, uh, he wards off evil uh, spirits. Okay. And, uh, and, and he looks like some sort of a demon to sort of Western eyes, and he has mm-hmm. these big, uh, you know, fangs and all. Uh, according to British uh, anthropologist uh, Anthony Forge, that's a great name for an anthropologist, it is. by the way. Yeah, the, the, the Forge of Anthropology here. Mm-hmm. He's noted that uh, the, this dental obsession manifests itself in the art, and so you see the teeth of supernatural entities such as the gods and spirits take on exaggerated uh, uh, okay. bestial form, you know, giant canines, uh, to symbolize the opposite of desired human qualities. Okay, I'm thinking of, like, some of the kind of, like... Um, tribal masks uh, that I've seen yeah. from certain Pacific Island cultures. Yeah, exactly. That okay. kind of, you know, like huge fangs, big yeah. smile. It's beautiful stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting how in looking at the way that the teeth of their spirits are represented in their art, uh, like that reflects, uh, too, in their uh, their body modification and the, the alteration of their teeth for 
for purely aesthetic, uh, spiritual and, you know, in cultural reasons. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, there's a couple of other examples that we're going to talk about in the episode today where that, that's similar and the, the deification mm-hmm. of the, of the teeth shows up in visual representations of gods or myths. Yeah. Okay, well, another uh, brief look here at some people who file their teeth for uh, dental modification is the Iben people of Borneo. Uh, and they further beautify their teeth by they both blacken and file it. But then what they do is they drill a hole in the middle of each tooth and then place a brass stud in this hole. Huh. So every tooth has like a tiny little brass stud in, in its center. Also, the Moy people of Vietnam, uh, they have their incisors chipped and ground down to the gum line. Uh, and this is um, something that was deliberately done in, in terms of like staining yeah. back when they were, this is before it was Vietnam, when it was referred to as French colonial Anam. I think I'm saying that right. Uh, and every person was expected to have their teeth blackened by what was, quote, a very painful process. Mm-hmm. Um, so for, for, for those of us who are afraid of going to the dentist, can you imagine just, you know, somebody going at you with, in a lot of cases, these are just with like stones. That's yeah. how they're, they're filing their teeth down. Uh, and then the blackening usually occurs with, some some kind of combination of like charcoal or plants. Yeah, they're uh, actually one of the practices in uh, modern uh, Myanmar is the, uh, uh, the the chewing of particular uh, um, you know uh, root substances uh-huh. to uh, to black to help teeth, blacken. Yeah. yeah. Well, the moy did it as like a beautification thing, yeah. basically, and it, the idea was that if you didn't do it, you weren't an adult and you couldn't get married. Mm-hmm. So nobody again, like it's the, like it's our version of the Hollywood smile, right? Like yeah. like they weren't considered uh, on equal level uh, of maturity until they had done this, and some. Tribes even gave their lower jaws like a saw shape with the filing combination. So that's kind of interesting. And then, uh, Mesoamerican teeth filing. There, there was a lot more research on, on this from what I could find, but basically it's a combination of the filing crosshatch designs, like carving crosshatches into your teeth and then the jewel inlays as well. So, uh, this was, uh, frequent in young adults in what is, uh, referred to as late classic Mayan sites. And I, I went and looked that up to, to give us some kind of placement here in history. It's around AD 550 to 830. Okay. Uh, many investigators believed at the time that dental mutilation correlated with high social positions. So we're seeing a theme here, right? This yeah. seems to be going along with pr- Almost all of these, it's a social status. Yeah, thing. you need to be able to pay a doctor slash artisan to transform yeah. your teeth into the desired form, which is the same thing that we have today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so there's a collection actually at the Instituto Nacional de Anthropologia e Historia in Mexico City where they have 1,212 teeth. That's a very specific amount of teeth uh, from this period of time. But yeah, mainly these were filed down with stones, the crosshatch patterns were carved into what's referred to as the labial surface of the tooth, and then they would put in jewel incrustation or inlays. Um, they're basically grills that aren't removable, uh, and they would use all kinds of different uh, stones for this. They used pyrite, jadeite, turquoise, hematite, serpentine, mother of pearl, cinnabar, or gold set into the surface of the teeth. The most popular and common were the iron pyrite and the jade, though. Uh, and the way that they did this, 
this is the part that's crazy to me. Like I, I normally don't have any problems when I go to the dentist. I'm pretty cool with them, you know, doing all the stuff in there and they put yeah. the little suction hose. Just lie and back and stare at the ceiling. Yeah. For the or most the TV, part. Yeah. Which, which always bothers me a little bit because I don't really want to watch the TV. I don't know if I want you watching the TV. Exactly. A bit yeah. While you're working on my mouth. Yeah. I've had people like comment, like, can you believe that? Like while they're working on my mouth and I'm like trying not <laughs> to pay attention to the TV. But yeah. Uh, so in, uh, Mesoamerica, Mayan culture, uh, what they would do is they didn't have the TV, but they would take a rotating fine tube of quartz or some other kind of resistant stone and they would rotate it slowly against the surface of the enamel of your teeth. They'd add water and an abrasive powder or sand to help drill it out for this inlay. They would possibly use what's called a bow drill as well, which I looked this up. It basically looks like what you would think. It looks like a, a bow for a bow and arrow. Oh, yeah. And then in the middle, instead of having an arrow, there's there's this quartz tube thing that kind of spins, apparently. Okay, like you see, sometimes uh, used as a fire making up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so this was probably somewhere around 700 to 900 AD. And one theory is that this filing occurred because, okay, here we go again with the deity thing. The Mesoamericans were honoring a particular solar deity who is depicted as having filed teeth. So this was a way to show their admiration for him. Some of the skeletons that are found in the archaeological record there show incomplete inlays as well. Uh, and they think that this might be because the pain was actually so much that some people couldn't go through with it or that the individual died before it was finished. Uh, and death was also possible uh, fairly soon after because there was a high risk of bacterial encephalitis after these procedures. So one of the pieces that we read for this is a thesis paper uh, by a woman named Danielle Barnes. And we're going to come back and cite this a lot. But I want to insert this here because the main argument of her thesis was that uh, and I'm quoting her here, since death is a possible outcome of intentional dental modification, it should be considered a high-risk procedure. So her point with all of this was she sort of showcases all of the different anthropological modifications of teeth and then says, you know, think about this in context of today and how we modify our teeth today and that there's some danger involved there. Mm -hmm. But she does point out that things like adding grills and caps or modern dental procedures, you know, that, that that's not what she's talking about here. She's talking about uh, instances like trying to file your teeth down with stone or, uh, as we're going to talk about later, you know, the extraction of all of the teeth from your lower jaw or something right. like that. Which even today, you go in and get your wisdom teeth removed, they put you under uh, anesthesia, there's always that slim possibility that you won't wake up. Yeah, I always have that thing. So I, I um, used to be diagnosed with something called a mitral valve prolapse, which is one of the valves in my heart wasn't fluttering the right way or something uh -huh. like that. That's why you don't love Christmas. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So when you have a mitral valve prolapse, whenever you go to the dentist, you might have heard of this since your dad was a dentist, you have to take antibiotics because they're worried that the bacteria that they're messing around with in your mouth is going to mm -hmm. go down and somehow infect your your heart oh, okay. uh, because the, the valve apparently makes you uh, more susceptible to well, infections. This is way. interesting. Uh, uh, we'll put a pin in that uh, tidbit because okay. that will become important later uh, on in the podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. of course. So, okay. So we're wrapping up on the uh, Mesoamerican Mayans there, but they really got this, you know, beautiful jewelry embedded in their teeth. Uh, and then there's the, the, the staining of the teeth that we want to come to. So there's anamese staining, right? 
Yeah, first of all, there's the the enemies who we've already covered, uh, and then uh, I believe we also have a uh, Japanese practice as well. Yeah, and so uh, Japanese women used to dye. This is a specific culture called Yeba, I believe. Mm-hmm. They used to dye their teeth black with tannin powder and a ferrous acetate solution, uh, and they considered this again. Uh, high fashion, and uh, it signified marital status. It was unknown at the time, but they also, uh, you know, realized this protected their teeth from bacterial colonization. So maybe that's what they should have done to me at the dentist instead is just given me like a, a solution of tannin powder and ferrous acetate rather than, yeah. you know, make me take antibiotics. This was also done, this kind of staining practice, in places like Peru, Ecuador, Vietnam, as we talked about, Laos, Thailand, the Philippines, and Africa. In Nigeria, some people stain their teeth with something called the solanum incanum flowers. And those are uh, apparently a relative of eggplants. Uh, or they use something called nicotania tabacum, which is, as it sounds, an herb containing nicotine. That sounds like it would actually be kind of cool. It's like, uh, it's like a, what do you call it? Um, Dip. Yeah. Yeah. Which, of course, can also stain your teeth. Um, you know, we already mentioned the, the enemies a, a couple of times, but uh, they had uh, an interesting uh, saying that, uh, that goes along with the staining. And that is that okay. any dog can have white teeth, yeah. which is it puts an interesting twist on it. Right. It goes yeah. back to that whole uh, I am human. And in being human, how am I different? I from have to the stand animals? out. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And, I, and as I was thinking about this, because I brushed my dog's teeth for him, <laughs> and I was thinking about this, that like his, obviously, his canine teeth are very pronounced, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I, I'm just trying to imagine like an anthropological uh, dog, like humanized dog kind of culture where they're filing down their canine <laughs> teeth. <laughs> Uh, it gets back to what we talked about on our Christmas episode, remember? Uh, oh, in, yeah. In Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, there's the whole thing with that <laughs> dentist elf, and he removes all of the uh, the Yeti, the Bumble's teeth, the abominable snowman. He pulls all of his teeth out of his head. So there's some ablation practice going on there. Oh, for sure. So definitely keep uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer in your mind. When we come back from this break and start discussing dental extraction mental illness, and science. All right, we're back. So, yeah, you're probably thinking, okay, so we've talked about the ways to just change the way your teeth look. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, for the most part, that's easier for us to get on board with because we look, again, we've already touched on how we're always altering the way our teeth appear uh, here in, in our modern Western uh, civilization. Yeah. And so we can say, all right, I, I would not personally want to file my teeth down or, or make them into little sharpened points, but I can see where that lines up with our existing uh, view of things. But yeah. then how does it make sense, right? How do we get into the place where one just removes a tooth or removes a bunch of teeth yeah. uh, for seemingly purely supernatural, superstitious or cultural reasons. Right. This isn't like you have a bad cavity and the only way to take care of it is to yank the tooth out. Right. right. In particular, there's deciduous teeth removal that's popular in certain African uh, tribal cultures. Uh, and it seems like they purposely damage what is referred to as the tooth germ. This is sort of like the growing tooth underneath your baby teeth, I mm-hmm. think. And they damage that so that, uh, you know, it just doesn't grow in. You don't have a, a full tooth there. And in general, African ablation, it seems like it's kind of common with cultures. Uh, and I, I might get some of these names wrong, but the these are the tribal cultures. Amhara, Azande, Maasai, Nuer, uh, Bakiga, Akoli, Bataros, 
Bugisas, uh, and that's in Uganda, and then the Haya of uh, Tanzania. And so this was one of the fascinating things that I read about, and I think that you saw as well, and it was in Eon Magazine, right? Yeah, there's a wonderful piece in Eon Magazine by Brendan uh, Borrell. Yeah, it, it explores what's known as Ebino, or false tooth disease, in Uganda. So uh, the, the it's also referred to as a tooth worm. Yeah, it, I guess with a lot of things supernatural and, uh, and folkloric, uh, it seems like it has a, there are a lot of different versions of what yeah, exactly it is. I think so. Yeah. It seems like, well, it, it, older versions of this. I don't think that this is modern, mm-hmm. uh, culture for them. They believed that the tooth worm was a possible demonic presence that uh-huh. was, uh, it emerged when they saw pulp coming out of damaged teeth. Um, so the tooth nerves, the nerves inside our teeth, Hopefully none of us have actually seen this. I haven't. Uh, when they're exposed, they have a kind of worm-like appearance to them. Uh-huh. Uh, and so there's evidence that back in uh, 2250 BCE, physicians would smoke toothworms out of the teeth by using nenbane seed that was kneaded into beeswax. That doesn't sound like it would be particularly fun either. <laughs> uh, uh, and the, the idea here was that it would just destroy the nerves in your tooth. So if you had any pain there, that would obviously disappear. I don't think you're actually getting at the quote-unquote toothworm. You're just killing the nerves in your teeth so you can't feel anything. Right. And in this, you know, it can, we're kind of getting to the, the root, if you will, <laughs> of this... Um, uh, of this scenario, because we're going to talk about some of the more, you know, elaborate and t- to our eyes, you know, nonsensical versions of it. But at heart, you're dealing with somebody in, in, an, in an older time with limited resources and understanding yeah. trying to address physical pain. Yeah. Trying to, to deal with anomaly, dental anomalies and, 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 and address them surgically. But as, uh, Brendan Burrell points out, and he, he just put this wonderfully in the article, uh, he refers to a quote sense of impotence in the face of bodily mysteries. Mm, and I feel like mm-hmm. that comes back a time, time and time again in this extraction section for a podcast. Yeah. Because you have people trying to, to deal with this illness, deal with this pain, deal with this situation. And the best of, of their understanding seems to point toward the, the removal of the problem tooth or yeah. the removal of a problem tooth in hopes of addressing it. Man, I, I mean, I, I go back to that Tina Fey quote that you gave at the <laughs> beginning. Like, I feel like, you know, I'm closing in on 40 here and I feel like I'm just starting to get to that point of these bodily mysteries. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, it's like, wait, when, where did this like piece of flesh come from? I don't remember this. Or why does this hurt when I wake up in the morning? Yeah. Cal Kinane has this bit about how when he wakes up in the morning, his whole body sounds like a bag of popcorn just out of the microwave because <laughs> it's all popping and everything like that. That's, and I'm, I'm getting to that point too. And I, you know, I'm no uh, doctor. I don't know. So I go into my doctor and I go, Hey, what's going on? The same way these people probably went to their, you know, localized version of a doctor and were like, all right, give it to me with the uh, nenbane seed and the beeswax because <laughs> I don't know what's happening in my mouth. Now the uh, the false tooth disease the the abino uh, it also ends up you know applying a lot to children so you have you have an infant sick infant infants complaining and so there's the belief that the child might have this worm tooth in their head mm. this cursed tooth that could result in the emergence of gum maggots uh, and then this is going to you know just 
roll out of control. And that the causes here can range from just, you know, infected maze to outright bewitchment. Uh, in fact, in the, the Inn uh, magazine article, they reference one uh, attributed cause is just passing a false tooth on the road. Huh. So there's a lot of superstition that gets rolled up okay. into this. And then the only way to deal with it is you, you don't go to the hospital. Yeah. You go to a traditional healer for the yeah. tooth removal. Yeah. One of the articles that we uh, referenced for this, they referred to traditional healer so many times that the author eventually just started calling them THs. Oh, yeah, <laughs> it took me a little while. What's a TH? Oh, traditional healer. Yeah. One of the papers we're looking at, uh, 2011 uh, paper uh, published in the Journal of Ethnobiology and Ethnomedicine. And, and they put a lot of this in some interesting uh, context. They said uh, that in Cameroon, for instance, traditional healers actually do a pretty decent job at tooth extracting. Mm-hmm. And most of the the examples they looked at, and again, this was in 2011, so this is you know very much you know modern times. Uh, most of the examples of tooth extraction stemmed from legitimate concerns such as tooth pain, looseness of the teeth, or or some sort of visible hole in the tooth. And so while this paper criticized, of course, a lack of lack of standard infection control methods and proper dental uh, anatomy understanding among the traditional healers, the paper ultimately suggested like the answer here is not to just tell all the traditional healers to go away, but yeah. try and bridge the world between modern dental practices and traditional healers. Yeah, so that they're communicating with one another and they've sort of got a bit of understanding. I remember from that one piece that, that some of the data was surprising. Like one of the things they were looking at was like how often they wore gloves when they yeah. uh, moved between different patients and were like extracting teeth. And then, But then there was other instances, I think they said something like three-quarter of the traditional healers, if it was like a serious dental problem, they would recommend you need to go see an actual dentist like right. what i'm doing here isn't isn't going to cure your problem here yeah and indeed to come back to the uh, ugandan situation with the false tooth disease the uh, ian magazine article points out there you know a number of contributing factors as to why the individual would go to the traditional healer yeah. versus the, um, the the modern hospital, yeah. you know, with their sick child. I would suspect that money is one of them. Oh, yeah. It's generally cheaper. We're talking about an impoverished region where available Western medicine is still distrusted. You have high mortality yeah. rates at, at the modern hospitals, corruption, expense, uh, facility shortcomings, uh, and it all results, you know, in a modern health system that feels alien and maybe even a bit dangerous to someone accustomed to that culturally ingrained traditional healer system that is also just going to it's just going to be so much more comfortable and you're going to end up having more faith in its uh, ability to cure what ails you and to give you an idea of the numbers we're talking about here so this is present day in certain villages in Tanzania 60% of people have their teeth intentionally removed 16% in northern Uganda 22% in the Sudan 59% of Ethiopian Jews and then 70% of other Ethiopians do this. And then the, the real high point was 87% of the Maasai in Kenya do this. The Maasai say that there, there's a medical reason though, right? There, mm-hmm. there's no longer this demonic toothworm thing. Um, they're removing mandibular central incisors, uh, specifically in some situations so that they can help feed a person if they end up with tetanus and subsequently get locked jaw from that. Huh. So they want to make sure that there's a way, you know, if their jaw is locked shut in our societies, we do the whole thing with the straws and everything, or we have IVs or whatever. But, you know, in this situation, they're thinking ahead. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. And then there is another thing I read. This is very brief. So I don't know how much uh, there is 
to this, and I'd love to hear if somebody in our audience knows a little more about it, but apparently the Demera people in South Africa, they say that the reason they remove their maxillary anterior teeth is so that they can properly speak their language, which has a lisp to it. Huh. Though that is interesting as well, uh, and, and certainly something that stands out from our other examples, the yeah. idea of augmenting your teeth so as to augment speech, because that, mm-hmm. that's something we didn't mention earlier, but having a full set of teeth also plays into your ability to 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 speak. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Now, uh, another example of uh, dental um, augmentation uh, comes to us. This was actually suggested to us, to us by uh, one of our South African listeners, uh, Sheldon. Uh, this oh, is, maybe Sheldon knows about the Damara thing. Yeah, right? yeah, maybe she can throw in on that as well. But in this case, she was uh, saying she pointed out uh, what's known as uh, the Cape Flat smile, and sometimes kind of erroneously uh, referred to as a passion gap. So what we're talking about here is the removal of the front teeth, uh, the front uh, incisors amongst communities of the Western Cape uh, in South Africa. Specifically, it's something you see among poor male teenagers that are wrapped up in gang culture. Okay. Uh, And it's it's a a modern practice. You still see it today. And the practice seems to serve as part of a, a rite of passage into adulthood. The passion gap thing... I'm not going to get into the details, but that seems to be something where uh, outsiders misconstrue or even decide to sort of uh, demonize it by saying that it has some sort of a sexual connotation. Okay. But there doesn't seem to be anything to back it up. Okay. Now, it's not the kind of thing that you would go to the dentist for, or apparently you could, but you might have to find a dentist that would who would do this procedure. Yeah, I imagine it's like sort of the difference between getting like uh, your friend to d- give you a tattoo and then like going and spending like a lot of money at a fancy tattoo parlor. And in this case, you t- t- you'd spend all that money. You take as much as you can you can actually uh, dish out and you go uh, get a partial dental insert to fill that gap. Okay. And here you see just, uh, you know, an explosion of, of gold and bling and whatever, sure. okay. whatever you can afford. Um, like some of the accounts say that like basically whenever you can upgrade to something a little fancier, mm-hmm. you do so. Okay. So here we see a little bit of the modern sort of bling culture. We see some of these ancient yeah. practices we've already discussed, uh, you know, where you're just taking gold or jewels to yeah. brighten up the teeth. But in this case, it's about let's just go ahead and remove those front four teeth and just get something fancy and bright up in there. Yeah, I can, uh, I mean, I, I'm not familiar with this particular subculture, but I can imagine like both how it would denote status because you're showing off money mm-hmm. uh, in terms of like the, the particular jewel or metal that you're having put in your mouth, but then also just like, hey, I'm tough enough to have uh, somebody just take these teeth out. I don't need a gas mask. I don't need laughing gas. Yeah, yeah. It seems seems to be a, a convergence of those two different forces. And you were just telling me before the, the podcast episode, before we came in here to record it, you've seen some of this in South African hip-hop videos? I, I feel like, yeah. So uh, in, I might be wrong here. Again, like uh, our listeners in South Africa, please correct me. My only familiarity with uh, South African hip-hop is through Diant Word, which is fairly popular internationally. But I, I really enjoy them. I've seen them tour. Uh, in America and uh, watched a bunch of their videos and I feel like I've seen some of this uh, missing front tooth action in those videos but I don't know if that's particular to the subculture or not. like with people in the background and yeah, auxiliary like, performers yeah not okay. the actual members of the band but people who are just performing and dancing and stuff in the videos alright we're going to take another quick break and when we come back uh, I know what a lot of you are thinking. You're thinking, "Hey, we've talked about uh, you know all of these uh, these other cultures that have uh, that have used uh, you know ritual or unnecessary tooth extraction." Well, 
hold on to your seats because uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to look at examples from Canada and the good old United States. All right, we're back. So, okay, yeah, we had sort of set this up as saying, like, well, there's a, a Western perception of tooth modification that's very different from these other cultures that we're talking about, whether it's Mesoamerican or African or Asian, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and even in some cases, there are Australian tr- tribes where uh, they perform ablation as well. But uh, w- we've got this going on uh, right in Canada, right north of Maine. Yeah, we uh, we ran across this uh, excellent paper, very intriguing paper, um, titled French-Canadian Prenuptial Dental Extractions in Acadian Women, First Report of a Cultural Tradition uh, or Quebec Practice. Uh, this was, yeah, this was really interesting. Uh, and it apparently, had, you know, it has, has occurred in, in modern times mm-hmm. among Acadians. These are uh, descendants of 17th or 18th century French colonists in regions of the Canadian provinces of New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia. Uh, and what was interesting about this paper was the author's goal was essentially to interview dentists in the region to mm-hmm. find out if simply if they'd ever been asked to perform this procedure. Yeah, as well as some interviews with with people who knew or or had this procedure right. done. Yeah. yeah, just to see like to what extent is this a thing and not just a matter of like, like an a few urban cases myth or yeah, an urban myth. Yeah. Um, and it's, and it, it's not, it, it turns out like her results were pretty positive. It turns out that this is a thing. Yeah. In these cases, the women undergo, or in some cases they, they seek to undergo because they talked to Dennis too, said, well, someone turned it down, right? right? Yeah. yeah. Turn it down. Um, but they're seeking the extraction of all upper and or lower, uh, teeth to, in, in order to obtain dentures prior to marriage. Right. So the dentures are a dowry, right, from one family to another. And so they have to have their teeth removed to receive the dowry. Yeah, it's, um, you know, and, and again, we kind of get back to some of these cases we talked about earlier. Like at what at what point is there like a medical concern here? And then right. at what point does it become uh, you know, more complicated in terms of cultural, uh, you know, aesthetic values and mm-hmm. mate selection? Uh, there's at least one account in the paper and it's you know it's a little dubious, but I, I still want to mention it. Mm-hmm. That alleges that the that this was a British practice by which a colonist prepared for the wilds of the New World and oh, yeah. its lack of dental care by simply removing one's teeth and replacing them with dentures. That's ironic, given how many jokes are made about British dental practice in in, in present day society. Although, I, yeah, I don't know how much stock I put into that. Yeah, I mean. To a certain extent, based on what we've been reading about uh, about the the acknowledged link between uh, any kind of dental infection and how that could you know and and, and other health problems, yeah. I could imagine a scenario in which someone might think or might be convinced, hey, you've got some some tooth teeth issues going on already. You don't have the best dental health. Right. You're about to go to the wilds of Canada. Where there, you're not going to have a dentist. Why don't you go ahead and get this out of the way? Why don't we go ahead and remove the problem teeth? Maybe just remove all those teeth. Yeah. Get some sort of uh, dental, um, uh, you know, insert in there. Get some, get some, some, some dentures in place. And then the only thing you have to worry about is cleaning those things in a stream somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's fair. That- well, one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about this particular article was, uh, some of the dentists, or at least one of the dentists she interviewed, was Acadian, was from this culture, mm-hmm. and was like, I've never heard of this before, and thought that they were joking, and yeah. then realized, 
oh no, this is an actual practice. It's just I'm removed from this particular. It's like a niche subculture within uh, the Acadian people. Yeah, it's a small, rare thing. But but when they poked around, they found that yes, it did occur with enough frequency to suggest that it that it was a, a an actual thing. It wasn't mm-hmm. just you know a few individuals here and there. Mm-hmm. So the author's core argument here is that this all may come down to just an uncertain grasp of those of the connections between oral health problems, pregnancy, and just overall health in general. Uh, because certainly before the advent of antibiotics, various medical medical conditions were blamed on chronic tooth infections. So if you can't figure out the source of an ailment and you know that there's a troublesome tooth, well, then you just go ahead and yank it to be sure, right? Mm-hmm. So what might have begun is a half-blind attempt to ensure mother and child survival in a harsh environment may have uh, become a brutal social norm. Okay, okay. So the next example that you have here is actually another thing that we ended up talking about during that Christmas listener mail episode uh, in relation to the the abominable snowman having his teeth ripped out, right? Because oh, you're yeah. a big fan of the TV show The Nick. Yeah, yeah, I really love the Nick, uh, directed, uh, by Steven Soderbergh, uh, Clive Owens is in it, uh, just a great look, fictionalized look at, at cutting edge medicine, like the frontier of medicine and just the ins and outs of running a hospital, uh, in turn of the century New York City. And if you're a viewer of the show, you might remember that there's a character that pops up by the name of Dr. Henry Cotton, and he's played fabulously by John Hodgman. Mm-hmm. Like, once you see this, you may find John Hodgman less funny in real life. Like yeah. that's, and I mean that as a compliment. That's he does such a fine job. I could with the see, character. yeah, I could see Hodgman performing like a particularly kind of creepy, uh, a doctor type. Yeah, and he he, but he manages the creepy in a way where it, it it's the most natural Hodgman performance I've ever seen. Like yeah. he just does a great job. Okay, what's what's notable in the show is that he goes around basically prescribing full dental extraction. Uh, for not only his mental patients, but also for his own children. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And this isn't because like he's marrying them off and they need dowry dentures or because no. of any particular cultural reasons. No, it, it seems to be a situation where it's like those teeth are going to cause all sorts of horrible infections. They're going to, it's going to lead to madness. Better to just pull them all out now. Wow. And while fictionalized, this, uh, the, the writers of the Nick actually base this character on a real guy. The real Dr. Henry Cotton, who lived uh, 1876 through 1933, was a respected academic uh, psychiatrist, and he served as superintendent of New Jersey's Trenton State Hospital. And he was a huge proponent of modern medical practices. Uh, but when he when established methods proved ineffective in the physical treatment of mental illness, he turned uh, to the uh, bacteriological theory of disease. Okay, and so this was like a general idea at the time that was, you know, depression or other mental illness stemmed from something going in the on in the body, some organ problem, right? In a lot of cases, like that, I I had read about in relation to this, it was uh, the colon was being removed. Yeah, yeah, and we'll we'll get to that, but it's yeah, ba- I mean basically this was a there was a lot of big gains going on in medicine mm-hmm. and we were f- figuring out what the biological roots of things like cholera and uh, right. malaria were. So, it seemed like the sky was the limit and that mm-hmm. we could just if we barreled down, we could find these problems and we could just completely take care of it. So, yeah, Cotton decides to give it a go. Uh and in his day there was a, a prominent theory from a pair of British surgeons 
uh, that linked untreated infections in the gums and in the intestines, okay. uh, to your point. Uh, and, that, and the idea was that these untreated infections were toxifying the blood, and this, this could result in pathological brain alterations. Mm. So Cotton took this theory and he ran with it. So in 1916, he extracted the infected teeth from 50 mental patients. And so these are just the infected teeth. Yeah. Uh, and then he you know, takes a step back but this doesn't seem to be doing any good. So then he goes back in and has just all their teeth removed. Huh. And uh, then this doesn't work. So he continues to um, chase the decay, as I've heard um, I've heard the term thrown around in, uh, among dentists. Okay. Um, so the patients have clearly swallowed tainted saliva stemming from uh, their oral infections. So he systematically removes tonsils, spleens, stomachs, colons, the cervix. And, and amid all this butchery, He's reporting reporting yeah. an eighty five percent cure rate for mental illness. Ugh. But how many of his patients lived through all these <laughs> procedures? Jeez, that's the thing. Because at first everybody's like, "Oh, the, this huge success rate. This guy's doing good work." Yeah, and he's I'm depressed. Can you remove my stomach, please? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because- I mean, there's obviously a, I, I can see the sort of correlation there. There's obviously a long history of, mm-hmm. and we t- we think about it today with people who talk about IBS between you know the mental connection to the digestive system. But I don't know that one necessitates the removal of the right. other. Right. I mean, the connections <laughs> are there. It's yeah. It's just what do you do about those connections and what kind of assumptions do you jump to? Yeah. Because uh, to your point about uh, about you know how many of these individuals are surviving, uh, the mortality rate was. 30 to 40 percent. And so when that starts to get out, uh, the enthusiasm for Cotton's cure here kind of, uh, you know, peters out a little bit. And eventually psychoanalysis gains steam. uh, But these procedures, particularly the surgeries and the removal of, you know, intestinal material, this continues at Trenton Asylum until Cotton Cotton dies of a heart attack in 1933. This actually reminds me of something that I'd like us to do an episode about uh, is coffee enemas. Because I think that there's there's somewhat of a connection there, right? That like the, the fad of coffee enemas that you feel better, you feel mentally better after you've kind of flushed your system out this way. Uh, again, the connection between the gi- digestive system and the mental process. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can get into the topic of rectal feeding, which yeah. uh, Mary Roach explores uh, in her book, Gulp. Which I highly recommend if you yeah. have, if you're at all into a bunch of weird digestive uh, data about how the body actually works and some of the stuff we've done in exploring it. That's a great uh, book to check yeah, out. My wife's read it, and I know that it's come up on the show frequently in the mm-hmm. past. I need to get on that. So we're winding down here, but it is important to uh, to bring things back around and touch on some of the, uh, the 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 actual science, some of what current science is saying about the effects of tooth extraction on brain functionality. So according to a 2014 paper from uh, University College London published in Journal of the American Geriatric Society, memory and walking speeds of adults who have lost all of their teeth decline more rapidly than those who still have some of their own teeth. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. It's, I mean, as we'll break down here, it's a little more problematic. I would imagine, yeah, I imagine that there's not a direct connection between those things, but that there's... The aging process in itself is related to those. Yeah, because you have to ask questions. Well, why? Why did this individual lose their teeth? Exactly. You know, yeah. What uh, socioeconomic situations are going on here? What, right. How's that factoring in? How is pre-existing mental illness factoring into lack of hygiene? That sort of thing. But the study looked at uh, over 3,000 adults age 60 or over, uh, uh, and uh, then they compared uh, the, their performance in tests of memory and walking speed. 
And people with none of their own teeth performed uh, approximately 10% worse in both memory and walking speed tests than people with their teeth. And they adjusted uh, this for a wide variety of factors, you know, socio-demographic characteristics, sure. existing health problems, physical health, health behaviors. Did they smoke? Did they drink? Did they have, um, you know, episodes of depression in their life? Applied all of this and they still found a definite gap. Huh, okay. So... so the theory here is that tooth loss could be used as an early marker of mental and physical decline in older age. Now, a 2013 study uh, takes things a little little further. Uh, this was uh, published in the European Journal of Oral Sciences, and um, it explores uh, sort of the hypothetical effects of, of tooth loss here. The research was carried out by, the, by universities in Norway and Sweden, and they looked at 273 participants with missing teeth aged 55 to 80, and then they gave them memory tests. Okay. And they found that the number of teeth in an individual's head, quote, positively associated with performance on episodic memory recall as well as recognition. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm trying to visualize, a, a, maybe our listeners are doing this too. I'm trying to visualize a biological connection mm-hmm. between your teeth and the memory centers in your brain. And I, I suppose that's part of it, but there's also, you know, sort of the external factors of not having your teeth and the right. acceleration of memory loss. Yeah. So a lot of this seems to come down. A lot of the theory here seems to come down to the fact that the movement of our jaw and and teeth sends sensory input data to the hippocampus, the area of the brain that forms and retrieves memories. Yeah. So one hypothesis is that. So we have reduced sensory input from those missing teeth. That could be damaging our memory. Implants okay. could help, but they're never going to replace all of those lost sensations. Okay. So th- th- this is like a mastication type of thing that like as you chew, you're receiving sensory input. Huh. Okay. Yeah, it's kind of like you have all these dead phone lines and that right. could be affecting the, the the phone bank in your in your head. Yeah. To put it very simply. Huh. Yeah, I wonder well, this is maybe unrelated, but I wonder if there's a, a connection between um ringing ear hmm. and, and and memory loss as well, because that's sort of a similar phenomenon in which like it, uh, the dead phone line uh, analogy is a good one. That your, your brain's huh. not receiving the right signals. Anyway, what's the what's the other hypothesis? The second hypothesis is that it c- could come down more to chewing. So it okay. chewing increases blood fo- flow in the brain and oh, it has okay. been shown to increase activity in numerous brain areas, even with dentures, yeah. an individual with lost teeth is going to maybe avoid certain foods. They're going to chew less. So there's going to be less chewing action. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, then that's going to mean less blood flow in portions of the brain. Possibly. Yeah. My grandmother was recently sick in the hospital and they uh, I, I'm assuming this must be like a fairly standard practice for hospitals, but they pureed everything that she ate. Mm-hmm. So everything that she received was pureed so that she didn't have to chew as much mm-hmm. because she was so weak from the illness that she had had, which was pneumonia. Now, finally, it's also possible that people lacking teeth uh, and denture wares, that they end up avoiding certain foods leading to lower intakes of key vitamins, proteins, and just calories in general, which in turn impacts brain performance. Okay. Huh. Well, I'm most curious about hypothesis one, and I wonder if there's any connection. Maybe this is just like where I'm going, but I wrote an episode about ringing ear uh, for our our video series Brain Stuff one time, and and very similar kind of kind of missing sensory signals there. So, yeah, I'm curious about that. Now, there have been other studies that have explored correlation between dental hygiene and various health conditions. There seems to be a connection between gum health and heart health, uh, between gum disease and dementia. 
Uh, some even suggesting that gum disease bacteria might get into the brain, causing mm-hmm. inflammation and brain damage. Well, that sounds very similar to the heart thing I was talking about earlier. Yeah. And it all comes back to, uh, you know, Brendan Burrell's uh, quote about that, that sense of impotence in the face of bodily mysteries. Like, I feel like we, we end up coming back mm-hmm. to that same place of just of being not completely sure. Yeah. How uh, biological factor A influences biological factor B. We're not as far ahead of the curve uh, with our own biology as we like to think that we are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair to say. But so I guess I guess the question is, like, uh, it, let, let's say, like, we're in a situation where, uh, you know, civilized society has fallen apart and you've got a toothache. Would you uh, go ahead and just have somebody yank your tooth out and then, like, use, like, a hot knife to burn out the any tooth germ that was remaining behind. I mean, the thing about any kind of dental pain is you can you can imagine yourself getting to that point where yeah. you say, "All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to this traditional healer. I'm gonna go to this guy down the street. I'm going to try something myself." Because when when stuff starts going awry, awry in there, you're gonna do whatever it takes. You're gonna even further connection between you know the, the mouth and the and the brain and the mm-hmm. mind and the. I, I think that there's like a, a large connection there because, yeah, I, I, any kind of tooth pain that I've ever had before is just utterly distracting from anything else that's going on. Yeah. And certainly, you know, any kind of dental infection, if it's not treated, if it uh, gets out of control, that can have dire consequences on your overall health. So it's not just a there's there's not necessarily a layer of mystery right. between uh, dental health and overall health. Yeah. So there you have it. Dental extraction, dental modification. We've taken you through a number of different cultures. We've taken you across time here and uh, hopefully landed in a place of uh, curiosity, wonder, and, and maybe a little horror. Yeah. So uh, I'm curious out there, you know, maybe you have spent time among some of the cultures we're talking about, whether it's uh, the the Acadians in Canada or you're in Uganda or maybe uh, Mesoamerica. You've done some archaeological digs in, in Mayan cultures before. What what experience do you have with this teeth modification that goes on in other societies? Or, you know, what kind of experience have you had uh, in our own sort of Western, you know, uh, general dentistry? Yeah. And hey, in the meantime, check us out at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where we find all the blog posts, the podcast episodes, the videos, links out to those social media accounts we mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. And uh, hey, if people want to get in touch with us the old-fashioned way, how can they do that? Well, they can write us on the email and that is blow the mind at howstuffworks.com For more on this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com 